This is Talking Dirty, Get Gardening's podcast for plant lovers. The video version is available on our Get Gardening YouTube channel, so you can head over there if you want to see our ugly mugs, and there are pictures of the plants there as well. There are full plant lists on our Twitter and Instagram at Get Gardening Now, so go check those out. But without further ado, let's start Talking Dirty. And welcome to episode 50, our first birthday edition of Talking Dirty, over at East Rustonold Vicarage, suitably bedecked in flowers for this birthday edition. We have Alan Edward Herbert Gray, our happy and even more handsome than usual horticulturalist. <laughs> <laughs> well, over in Cambridgeshire, we have the most delightful um, oranges and yellows and, um, you know, the wonderful colours to, to celebrate a 50th anniversary. I know. Well, I actually, I went through my wardrobe and I thought, what is the most rosy of my clothes? I wanted something that looked like it was covered in roses, like it was just an entire hedge of flowers, because... For our 50th episode, we thought we'd do something a bit special and invited along Rosarian Michael Marriott. Welcome to the podcast. Before we get into this whole Rosarian term, do you have any middle names to share? Just the one, Victor. Victor! Oh, yes. what a solid middle name. <laughs> so the, my initials are MVM, which I've always, I always think my parents did a very good um a very good choice there. I think I and, and sort of when I do my initials, and sometimes people refer to me as MBM, so. Uh. Oh, very good. It does look a little bit like a Roman numeral. Absolutely. Uh, well, 1950, isn't it, I think? Yeah. <laughs> very good. Well, I introduced you as a Rosarian, and I am very excited for the roses you have brought for show and tell. We had a little sneak peek at those before we started recording. But this term rosarian, I must confess, is not one I'm overly acquainted with. And maybe there'll be one or two viewers or listeners who don't know about it as well. So when did you acquire the term? How does one become a rosarian? Um, explain it for us. Um, basically, it's a rose expert. Uh, it's a bit of an Americanism, but it sort of, it, it sums up what I do really, what, what I am, which is just a, you know, all-purpose rose experts so you know if, if you ask me any question about roses and I'll have a good stab at uh, answering it and hopefully sort of fairly correctly really. That sounds um, like a challenge. But... Alan think of something really <laughs> really left field. <laughs> no I have got I have got a list of one or two questions actually and I know that I know that Michael will know the answers and be able to provide solutions to some of these um, and one of the things that I, I would like to know is I'd like him to recommend a rose that's good for hedging um, and I think I know one he's going to say, but I mean, you know, when people tend to plant rose hedges, they go for probably the rugosas. Yes, uh, which, which is sort of the classic answer. Yeah. Uh, which is. are great, actually. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, people are a bit sniffy about them because they, you know, you see them in sort of Sainsbury's car parks and, and they're sort of, uh, 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 people think they're coarse, but they're not really. Uh, uh, I mean, the reason why people plant them in car parks uh, and in hedges is because they're incredibly tough. Um, mm. they, they, they'll, they'll withstand um, being planted right by the sea. In fact, they're, they're native to the northern coasts of Japan, North Korea, and Siberia, and northern China as well. That covers salt winds. Um, it covers hardiness. Absolutely. I mean, you know, what could be, they, they can't be tougher than that. And then they, they repeat flower, which of course is, is extremely rare in the, in the wild rose. All wild roses are just a very few... Uh, only flower once. They have a fantastic fragrance, really, really good fragrance. And then they set these cherry tomato-like hips as well. So, you know, what, what's to go wrong? I suppose the one, well, is it for, for a hedge, it's an advantage, but sometimes it can be a disadvantage. They sucker fairly freely and they have super thorny stems. So, um, yeah, they're, they're in the right place, they're, they're just nothing like them. Michael, out, out of the modern varieties that we have today, is there one that you could recommend that would make a good edge? Well, complete contrast to that is, is one called Kew Gardens, uh, which is, um, I'm not sure I saw that at East Ruston when I was there recently. You didn't? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, single white flowers produced incredibly profusely. Uh, and as opposed to Rosa Rugosa, completely and utterly thornless, not a single thorn on it. And that, that makes a good hedge. Yes, there's a, there's a, plant, a hedge of it planted at David Austin's and literally it's flowers from the ground uh, up to the top, absolutely covered in flowers. 
and it repeats wow. flowers as well. So and very healthy. So, question yeah, I was asked. A question I was asked the other day, and I didn't know the answer to this at all. Is that are there any roses that are in any way resistant to honey fungus? <laughs> um, not that I know of. I think I, yeah. I think um, it's difficult to test that sort of thing. I, I think honey fungus tends to. Um, I think a lot of plants are infected with honey fungus, but they don't they don't suffer from it unless they're under stress of some sort. So mm. if you've got a very strongly growing plant, whether it's a rose or any other member of the rosacea or whatever, they won't they won't suffer from it at all until they start getting a bit old and tired. And by which case, you probably should dig it up and throw it away anyway. <laughs> I think that's a superb answer, actually, because look, people are loath to ever do that. But, you oh, know, I, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We, we, an old plant, and they they want to nurse it back to health. Uh, but sometimes the plant has just finished. Yeah, we had a very interesting conversation when we were out there the other day. You saying exactly that you're revisiting your parts of your garden to, to yeah. see what needs to be changed because you know, like everything, plants have a finite life. And uh, talking about Americanisms, um, they have a wonderful one for digging up plants that uh, and you know no longer garden worthy and they say shovel prune it <laughs> <laughs> which i think is just such a wonderful phrase <laughs> that is rather good so we've got a couple of hedges there i mean what in your garden do you have any rose hedges um no 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 i've got we've got several kew gardens uh and um it's something that most gardens, every garden should have one actually. And um, Rosie, my partner, uh, yes, my partner is called Rosie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, she said, oh, I want to plant one. Uh, and we've got a great big old Bramley apple tree, which is probably as old as the house, so late Victorian. And so underneath it is a sort of wildish area and it's of course quite shady as well. And she said, well, I think I want to plant this Kew Gardens under here. And I said, well, no, too shady, won't, won't do you. Uh, and of course, um, it's actually doing really, really well and covered in flowers at the moment. <laughs> so even though it's, it has, gets very little direct sun, uh, it's still doing very well. Well, the reason I wanted to, answer, I wanted to know the answer to that question is the fact that I've got an area of garden that is, is on the list to redo. And um, I need um, a circular hedge around an area in the middle of it. All right. Um, and that's why that's where Kew Gardens will come in very useful. Great. Good. I can only imagine that your garden, Michael, is pretty packed out with roses. What kind of a plot have you got at home? Uh, well, we've got, um, it's, it's changed recently. We've got, a, a, um, the, the main part of the garden is about uh, probably half an acre or something like that. Uh, but then when we bought this house, it's, uh, it's, it's actually a semi-detached house, but the other half of the house hadn't been lived in for over 35 years. And we were very lucky just when lockdown started last year, uh, being of April, we were able to buy the other half of, that, of the house. And so I spent the last 12 months basically as a builder, sort of ripping everything out and starting again. But of course the garden was completely junglified as well. And we literally had to burrow our way down from the garden to the to the bottom end, uh, where we found an old brick building, probably an old privy or, or pig, pig pen or something like that. Uh, and um, so, yes, that's been rather exciting to to sort of bring that out in, under control. So we, we haven't gone in with a heavy hand at all because there's, there's some lovely old fruit trees in there which have fallen over and it's dripping with ivy. Uh, so we've, we've cleared all the brambles and the nettles and ground ivy and things like that and uh, left the old trees and it's created these wonderful pockets of of uh, garden that we can plant up with whatever we want so it's uh, it's been really exciting so now we've got uh probably three quarters of an acre and we've also got two allotments as well for which because there's no room here for fruit and vegetables so we've got <laughs> two allotments luckily just up the road for growing uh, uh, got a nice range of apple trees and uh, lots of uh, sorted fruit and vegetables as well so plenty to keep us busy you are literally Thank living you. the dream michael <laughs> <laughs> that is the good life. i mean yeah the yes. garden next door this i mean i was a kid who loved the secret garden you literally just uh, bought the secret garden 
<laughs> well, my grandchildren, uh, I haven't seen them for a couple of years because uh, they live in the States and they're coming across soon. I, I know they're going to be uh, so excited. They're sort of, I don't know, seven or nine or something. Oh. I think they're going to be very excited about it. Oh, how wonderful. Now, we, obviously, we introduced you as a Rosarian and we've established the fact that you know pretty much everything there is to know about roses. How did you come to be a rose expert? Well, I've always been passionate about plants ever since I was very small. Uh, and then I studied agricultural botany at university because I come from a farming background. Uh, and then spent five years growing rubber cocoa and oil palm in the South Pacific. Um, came back home looking for a job, uh, got a job at a rose, nurse, rose and bedding plant nursery uh, near St Albans. Um, which was pretty awful. Uh, worked there for, for, for about a year uh, and then um, saw the job advertised for the nursery manager up at David Austin's. And that was 1985, I think, something like that. Uh, and started off as nursery manager. When the, the nursery then was still hardly known, really. David Austin and English Roses was just starting to be known because he'd introduced Graham Thomas uh, the Rose Graham Thomas a couple of years beforehand and that was the rose that really um, took the world by storm regarding the world by storm uh, and uh, so I joined exactly the right time so you know, interesting people started coming along to the nursery and I was required to go off and visit gardens uh, sadly never East Ruston uh, <laughs> and um, and uh, so my job gradually changed from nursery manager where I sort of worked out with everybody else in the field to to becoming more and more of a rose expert and and uh, uh, drawing up garden designs, uh, visiting gardens around the world, advising people, um, visiting, uh, talking to visiting uh, gardening celebrities, gardening you know, top gardening people, garden designers, and things like that, and and uh, generally had a very wonderful time. Really. <laughs> <laughs> then I retired uh, at the end of last year, or resigned, retired, yeah, retired at the end of last year. So now I'm. Of course, they're even more busy uh, doing various things. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the stuff, actually, of, of dreams, really, because um, uh, I do I do dislike it when people say I'm retiring and I'm doing nothing. I think, you know, you're either a doer or you're a dead one, I think, really. <laughs> you, like me, are a doer, so it's, it's, it's very good. Yeah, um, absolutely. I just going can I can I talk about climbing roses for a moment because sure. I mean let's well let's talk about David Austin really because I mean David Austin has been uh, of enormous importance in the rose world um, in bringing back or introducing even old-fashioned looking roses but they have the qualities of modern roses don't they yeah yes um, I, I dislike the word old-fashioned <laughs> all right. <laughs> I, I... <laughs> Well, what should we say? Um, uh, just old, old roses. roses. Old-fashioned old means that they're sort of, you know, out of fashion. Okay. But, but just old roses. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, he. The, the, the great thing about the old any group of roses, really, that they're incredibly variable. So, you know, anything from singles to semi-doubles to, to, to fully doubles. And what the, the great thing about David Austin was that he loved all roses. You know, the, the, the English roses associated with something with sort of maybe 150, 200 petals or something like that. Um, but in fact, he he loved all style of roses. I think the great secret to success of, of his roses is that uh, when he was looking for a new variety to introduce, it wasn't just the bloom he was looking at. Uh, it was, it's the whole lot. You know, the, a rose can be, have the most fantastic, beautiful bloom, tremendous fragrance, flower nonstop, not get any disease at all, be ugly. And what he was wanting was all those positive characters plus, plus overall beauty. And I think that's what most people want in their garden is beautiful plants. Uh, mm. And, and I, I rather rail against a lot of modern introductions which were introduced on the basis of novelty and novelty yeah, uh, yeah. doesn't necessarily uh, have any uh, doesn't any relevance to um, to beauty at all uh, and so I think that was his yeah, I say his, his the English rose is incredibly variable some are short some are tall some are, have got five petals some 200 petals um, and they, they fit in in so many different places uh, in the garden 
I think that's one of the great things. They are great for incorporating into mixed borders. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. And yes. of course, the other thing is fragrance. You know, what's yes. the first thing you do when you see a rose? You stick your nose into it. Uh, and if there isn't a fragrance, it's a bit of a disappointment, really. But uh... I have to say that when I, and a few occasions when I actually do get to visit gardens, I went to a wonderful garden full of roses yesterday. I walked in and there is this fabulous climbing rose on the side of the, the door of the house. And I just, it stopped me in my tracks and I just said, what's that? And she said, Mortimer Sackler, which is an Austin rose. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, superb rose. Yeah, we've got several in our garden here. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I, and I I posted, my last Instagram posting was was of Nautia in the foreground with Mortimer Sackler in the background. And you can uh, you can grow that either as a sort of fairly substantial shrub about sort of six foot, two metres tall, or actually makes a fantastic climber up to, um, well, yeah, 10, 12 feet or more. Superb. That's quite interesting because you're talking there, there's dual purpose on a rose. Absolutely. And it's all down to pruning. People, people are, I, I remember once got um, a, a very angry email from a group of Russians saying, how can you possibly have a, a variety that is both a shrub and a climber? That's just absolutely impossible. Uh, but of course, <laughs> it's down to climate. In Russia, they, they're going to stay as shrubs because the, the climate is fairly limiting. Whereas if you grow them in sort of California or, or Melbourne or Adelaide or somewhere like that, they're going to grow much more vigorously. Uh, so, but in this climate, a lot of them can, it's just down to how you prune and train it. And so you can easily make something like Mortimer Sackler or Graham Thomas. Um, a lot of them, you can, you, you can make, keep them as shrubs uh, or, um, or make the most fantastic climbers. And the, the stems are rather nice on Mortimer. They're very dark and very few thorns as well. And the flowers are quite small, so very sort of graceful uh, thing. I'm really encouraged to hear you talk about that idea of being able to get a shrub to kind of climb more, because it's something I'm trying in my garden. Um, but I would love to get a rambler that isn't too rampant. I would love that kind of effect, but uh, I am a little wary of buying something. I have a very small sort of suburban garden and it's obviously overfilled because I want to grow everything. So... Would you have a recommendation on that front for those of us not gardening on, you know, 32 acres? It's a big mistake. People are impatient. They, 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 they have a wall or an arch or something. Like that. Oh, I want it filled. I want it to covered quickly. And so they, they look through the list and they say, oh, yes, that, that'll grow six metres and I'll put that on my six foot arch. <laughs> Sorry to mix up the imperial and the metric. Uh, and then, of course, it, it grows to, to covers the arch within one season and then it just carries on growing and becomes a real menace and you hardly get any flowers. So it's very, very important to be patient. And I know it's very difficult, but you've got to be patient and, and wait for it to, um, to, to, to do its job in two or three or maybe four years uh, or something like that. And we've made a big mistake. I mean, the, the rounding rector we've got, we've got on the front of the house, it's, it's, you know, it's got up to the top within a couple of years. So it's just going to carry on growing. So anyway, to answer your question, um, there are some very, very good repeat flowering uh, ramblers around um, that, uh, that don't get too tall. So things like Lady of the Lake, uh, All Brighton Rambler, um, open arms, or if you want something very bright, then there's something called warm welcome, which is a rather strident uh, shade of orange. But you said a rambler. Why? Why are climbers generally are better? I think it's probably because I've seen things like rambling rector, and I just love the the. I am a big fan of informality, and I All love. Right. I love that sort of loose yeah. look of something like a rambling rector. But I am not going to make the mistake of putting rambling rector in my garden. <laughs> Yeah, so those four would be those uh, ones I recommend would be really good, actually. They're lovely, uh, lovely ramblers. Yeah, you have got some rambling rector by your screen, have you? Yes. Petal dropping off. Yeah, see, that's <laughs> what I'm after in my garden. <laughs> and the smell, I mean, the, 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 the smell of the flowers is just absolutely superb. It, it's, it's, the, it's the musky fragrance. So in roses, you get there's no other plant apart from the tropical epith epithetic orchids that have such a wide range of completely different fragrance types as the rose. Uh, and so you've got the five basic sorts. You've got old rose, myrrh, tea, fruity, and musk. And the musk fragrance is the one you get in the ramblers. And it comes from the stamens of the flowers as opposed to the petals and the other groups. And it's the sort of fragrance that wafts on the air. So even if you're several 
meters away, several yards away, you can still uh, detect that uh, wonderful, wonderful fragrance. But if you put your nose onto it, it actually smells like cloves, the spice cloves, and the bees absolutely love it. So outside my front door here, uh, you, you go outside, you can smell the smell and hear the bees buzzing away like mad. Uh, I, think, I think one of the things about um, Rambling Rector and the associated climbers, uh, uh, ramblers really, the associated ramblers of that group is the fact that they have a propensity to be, well in my garden anyway, they have a propensity to suddenly pop up somewhere, I mean, i.e. bird zone. So the yes. birds take the hips at the end of the season and they deposit the seed somewhere or other. And I've got quite a couple of very interesting ones. One is in my front courtyard. It's just flowering now. And it is a, a semi-double white rambler. And it's growing on the north side of a wall. And I've trained it through a crack in the wall. So the branch comes through on the south side. Yeah. Um, it gives me exactly what I want. Another interesting form happened um, in um, another part of the garden where we had these single white flowers. But each petal is penciled along the edge in carmine. Really? Yes. And it's a seedling. Yes, yes. Gosh. Um, I, I, I'm going to propagate it and just see what happens. But I mean, yeah. well, I know what happens because it, it flowers the once and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it might be nice, which is one of the things I like doing with these big old ramblers is putting them through trees. Absolutely. Now, it's the best way to grow them. I mean, the great thing about growing them through trees, you, you plant them and then you forget them and, you know, they'll maybe take two three four five years to sort of settle down and get going but then suddenly you'll, you'll be looking up and oh gosh you know there's an absolute yeah, exactly festoons of flowers coming out uh i've done that here we've got um uh, variety very rarely seen called wickwall then if you do oh yes uh, gray leaves yeah gray leaves very gray leaves uh single white flowers uh and i've planted up a hazel and it's been sort of sitting there not doing much and then suddenly I was looking at it the other day and then these, these stems popping out of the halfway up the hazel tree so um so next year it's going, to, it's going to look fantastic and of course if they're up there you can't you can't do anything about them you can't prune them you can't deadhead them you know you, you don't you just sort of sit there and admire and then they have a wonderful crop of hips in the autumn as well mm -hmm. that last right through the winter if you get the right variety so yeah wonderful plants I once saw Whitwood trained impeccably trained on a wall of a, of a manor house in Northamptonshire um, from top to bottom. And I mean, when it flowers, it was absolutely fantastic because they're quite wide flowers, aren't they, on Whitwall? Yeah, yeah. 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 And but you, have, you have to be a, a masochist to, um, to train Whitwall because the thorns are just absolutely just <laughs> the vicious. I thought you just explained everything because this person must be a masochist because. <laughs> Every single dead head had been ripped off, and it was just. Um, <laughs> look at your, your face says it all. There you are. <laughs> it was pruned impeccably and looked at. I mean, looked so tight and so uh, rigorously trained. I think. I mean, it was yeah. always tortured. And it's a, it's a shame, isn't it? Because ramblers should be allowed to do their own thing. They, they shouldn't Ramble. be trained like that. No, no, quite. I'm going to go to one of the most depressing things about roses, really. <laughs> which I have to, uh, 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 <laughs> well, we got to talk about it because it's there. And it is the, blimey, governor, you've got some black spot. <laughs> yeah, I've got some of that. <laughs> Never heard of it. Never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about black spot, Michael? And I mean, do we, I mean, I think lots of places in the garden, I've learned to live with it. And I mean, if I've got bush roses, I've planted other things amongst them. And hopefully people will look at the things that are um, pretty and not things that are not. Yeah. Um, what do you think about it? Yeah, absolutely. It's best to to accept it. You know, we all get pests and diseases now and again. Uh, hopefully we don't get too many pests, but <laughs> we all get diseases. <laughs> and, you know, we just sort of uh, hopefully run, run, run with it. Um, the, the great thing about black spot is that it's incredibly variety specific. So some varieties will just get it like nothing on earth and then others um, will, just won't get it at all. They'll be com completely healthy. So um, my pet hate variety is something like Zephyrin Druin, which just gets yes. going, awful thing, absolutely awful. And so yes. those are the sort of things that should be shovel pruned, you know, yes. because they'll be spreading their, their, their diseases onto their neighbors. So if all of your roses are, are relatively healthy, then there won't be very many spores flying around. And so everything will stay fairly healthy. But if you've got one or two really bad ones like, like Zephyrin Druin, 
then um, spread to its neighbours and you'll get more, more likely to get um, uh, bad outbreaks of disease. And you mentioned the spores. So is mulching a big asset in sort of easing black spot? If you've got a plant that's susceptible and you want to try and help it out, is mulching it going to really be an aid in your battle against the black spot? Yeah, anything you can do to, to make the plant grow stronger and better will help it to, to fight off diseases. Uh, the other big thing is that um, is if you go around a hose pipe, you know, and you sort of gaily waft your hose pipe around the place uh, in, in the evening, you come home from work if, you, if you're not retired, uh, <laughs> and uh, you, you glass of wine in one hand and a hose pipe in the other, and you're gaily sort of spraying everything with water. And if you do that in the evening, that's the best way of encouraging all the diseases. So whether it's black spot, powdery mildew or downy mildew, uh, and rust as well. They'll, they'll, they'll be, they'll, they'll thank you very much for it, and they'll, they'll, they'll propagate themselves. They'll start multiplying like mad with gay abandon. So um, yeah. So if you do want to water, water it in the sort of mid morning when, uh, when all your visitors are there, <laughs> Alan. <laughs> um, and, that could be. Um, and and or, or use something like drip irrigation. I think you've got some drip irrigation. Uh, yeah, we do uh, use it quite a lot actually, because I mean, drip irrigation it it it, it stops water evaporating. It stops yeah. the plants being spoiled. I mean, I think the other thing about r roses is if you if you s splash around your hose on full full blown uh, cabbagey roses, you're going to spoil the blooms anyway. You can do potentially, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So drip irrigation is the best system. It's quite cheap. It's easy to install, and if you put a spade through it, it's easy to, to mend as well. Because roses do like a nice moist root run. So the better the roses are growing, uh, the more they'll be able to fight off the disease. So moisture and feeding are, are the are the sort of two important things to do really, while yeah. along with pruning as well. We talk quite a lot. I feel like recently we talked quite a lot about the idea of feeding more regularly than people might naturally do you know you read the dose on the bottle you make up to full strength and you might feed a bit more sporadically but do you endorse that kind of weekly weekly uh, well, method of feeding or <laughs> uh, no i well i mean i, I um for for rose for plants in pots then yeah i, I when i think about it then i'll, I'll feed them um, but for roses in the ground, all they need is a couple of feeds, really. So one in spring, so about April time, and then the other one around now, really. So that's the granular feed. And the important, absolutely crucial thing about feeding any plants, really, using fertilizer in the ground, is to apply what it says on the packet. You know, so if it says, I don't know, 30 grams per rose or whatever, then apply 30 grams per rose. So if you start applying oh, that, that, that rose is not looking very good, I'll, I'll give it a bit more, then you're often doing much more harm than good. So follow the instructions and do what it says. Uh, Mike, you know. one of the questions that I get asked frequently, and I think this probably applies to people with small areas of garden and also to the elderly, is which roses can you recommend for growing in pots? Um... Well, you don't want anything too big. So, and uh, so something that grows sort of say two or three foot tall is, is a good idea. Um, you want something that's fragrant because you know one of the things about growing in pots is that you can the, the flowers going to be nicely at, um, at nose height, so you can go and stick your nose in it on a regular basis. And you want something that's repeat flowering uh, as well. So, um, some of the English roses, you know, things like Vanessa Bell or Desdemona. Desdemona is an absolute classic. Um, soft white flowers and the most superb fragrance and uh, fragrance and very good repeat flowering as well. The thing to remember about growing in pots is that you've got to really water them on a very regular basis um, and you know during hot weather then it's really got to be a generous quantity every day really, otherwise yeah. they'll start uh, suffering and look, looking miserable and won't repeat flower. Can I ask you if you've ever heard of a rose called aspirin? Yes, it's white, isn't it, I think? Yes. Yeah. I saw it in Helen, Helen Dillon's garden. She had that growing in a pot. Oh, right. I don't think it's got a fragrance, has it? Nope. No. It's got no. a beautiful name. <laughs> yes, awful. Well, it, has another, it actually has another name as well, but it was... It, it was <laughs> well, it's a bit like the... Um, there's a, the one, of the, one of the best hybrid teas, actually, is now called Elida. Um, but its first name was called Produce. <laughs> which is, of course, is a brand of nappy. 
I'm not going to ask what colour it is. <laughs> so talking about black spot and problems like that, I know that, Alan, you and I over the years have talked about companion planting for roses and things that might distract uh, the eye. And episodes and episodes ago, it might have been even episode six with Steve Coghill at King's College, Cambridge. Um, I'd taken a tour with him before the podcast and seen a gorgeous combination of, I think it was the Munstered Wood rose with calamint and that was something that really stuck in my head and worked so well so I don't know Michael if you have sort of top companion planting recommendations for roses uh, the, I mean yes uh, the, the, the um the last century was all about roses in formal rose gardens and of course that was the uh, the the monocultures and and the the well, we know what's happened about monocultures in, in our world at the moment. Um, so um, yes, but if you mix them up with other plants, not only does it help with their health, but also uh, it, it just looks beautiful, it enhances the roses. Uh, and so you can contrast uh, things like Munstead wood with great big dark purple flowers with you know, the really small flowers like, like catmint or, or well, it's a huge range of different, you know, but just about every single plant you can, you can, um, you can put with roses. The, the, Always the secret I, I say is that for it to work, it's got to flower at the same time. So, you know, it's no good if, if the rose is flowering um, two weeks after the, the, the plant next to it has, has finished flowering. To get that magical effect, you've got to get plants that flower exactly at the same time. But because roses repeat flower, they start in sort of June and go right through until sort of September, October time. And there's huge range. So you've got all the plants that are flowering now, the perennials and biennials and annuals as well. I mean, there are some, there are some truly hideous annuals around, but there are some very <laughs> lovely ones as well. Uh, and and then you've got the later flowering things, you know, all, all the asters. I was actually just going to mention to you, Michael, that um, some uh, some roses are particularly good in autumn. Um, and whether it be down to the fact that they just repeat flowering or whether it's the light, it doesn't matter. But I mean, I was just going to say, do you have a particular one or two, maybe three, that you could recommend for autumn planting with asters, for instance. Yeah, well, I mean, as it happens, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's a... Lady of Shalott, which just, I mean, it just flowers nonstop. It starts, it starts in sort of late May, early June, um, and it'll just carry on going almost continuously right through until, I mean, it'll still be trying to flower in sort of um, October, November, even December. Uh, and it just depends on, on what the weather's like. So this is, um, can be grown either as a shrub or a climber. We've got it as a, a shrub in our garden here. Uh, and it's not the best for fragrance, but it, uh, on a good day, uh, it, uh, it, it is very, very good indeed, actually, and the most beautiful color. And, and that, you can imagine that with something like Aster, Aster Monk or something like that. Yeah. Or even something that's really, really a dark purple aster, that would be fantastic. You say sometimes that, you know, it, well, the fragrance is not that good, but I have one thing to say to that, life's a series of compromises, because <laughs> that, that rose is so fantastic just to look at. I mean, yes. Yeah. Well, the, the, the secret about smelling roses is to smell them on a regular basis, because it's interesting, I was down at um, Board Hill uh, last week, uh, was it last week? Well, anyways, recently. And it was just when we went from that very hot weather to, to, um, to have to rain overnight. Uh, and the, the previous day, it was so hot and dry and nothing smelled very much. And I was doing this fragrance workshop. And I thought, oh God, you know, nothing's going to be smelling very good. Woke up the next morning, it rained overnight. Everything was all very humid. And the fragrance was just absolutely <laughs> fantastic. So um, do, you need to smell them on a regular basis and also smell several, several different flowers on a bush. So it seems often the first flower you smell doesn't have much of a fragrance at all. Uh, and then another one you smell with slightly different age has a different fragrance, has a fantastic fragrance and you smell another one that has a different, slightly different fragrance. So always the secret is to smell, smell several different blooms on a bush uh, and on a regular basis. And I always remember, I'll tell you this little story, is, um, one of my very, very favorite roses for fragrance is one called Buttercup. Uh, I've learned everything I know about fragrance from a wonderful chap who used to come up to the nursery two or three times a year, Dr. David Austin's, and, and he was a retired nose, so he'd sort of stick his nose into it and say, oh yes, this is so -so, so, you know, tea with a bit of uh, elderflower in it or whatever. Uh, and 
every single variety he could describe the fragrance of, uh, except for this one called Buttercup, um, which I actually I should have got that in, from the garden as well. Uh, and it's just all he could say that's a delicious fragrance. <laughs> he couldn't actually <laughs> describe it. He couldn't actually say it smells like senzo senzo. It's just a delicious fragrance. And so. Whenever I went down to the, the garden, when I worked at the nursery, um, I, um, I used to pick a flower of this and then sort of smell it and, and take it back up to the office. Uh, and one day, instead of the normal delicious fragrance, um, it smelled like cocoa powder. <laughs> <laughs> so really weird, but you know, so you do smell roses on a regular basis, different times of day, different weeks, different ages of flowers and um, it's always very good. Smelling anything in the garden is, is a, a wonderful thing to do. It has a very strong effect on a very basic part of the brain. So, and, and smelling roses especially, it has this wonderful ability to sort of calm us down, but at the same time raise our spirits. So, yeah. And I think fragrance is really underused in so many gardens. Um, we all, when we get into garden, I, I think we are primarily sort of wooed by the flower and you plant things and it's fragrance the appreciation of fragrance and the part that has to play in the garden is something that tends to come years later I think it took me years to come around to how important fragrance was in the garden and I'm very much still on my journey of adding that into my garden yeah yeah oh it is it's, it's crucial and and because of my smelling roses on a regular basis now I go around and smell everything in the garden and uh, you know, absolutely Delightfully delighted sometimes. Things like irises, people don't, often don't think that, that bearded irises smell, but they've got a fantastic range of fragrances yeah. and peonies as well. You know, things like Sarah Bernhardt. Uh, and then you come across something, I went, I was at Board Hill as well, there was this uh, Dranunculus that was flying <laughs> when we were down. <laughs> not, not, not quite so pleasant, <laughs> but still interesting. <laughs> you really are smelling everything. <laughs> I have a little story about Dracunculus vulgaris, which is the fact that, that this, this um, reverend gentleman came to the garden one day and he brought his mother. And we were selling Dracunculus vulgaris and she said, what on earth is this? In, and it was just producing its, its foliage, you see, in a pot and everything. And so he said, oh, mother. And he gave me a broad wink. He said, that's something you must have in your garden. <laughs> and we basically had a knowing smile together. And um, anyway, uh, to, to just explain to everybody what Dracunculus vulgaris is, of course, it, it, it has this brilliant sort of maroon coloured spathe, but it actually stinks because it smells of carrion, because where it lives, it's pollinated by flies. And I did a similar thing with a, with a, with a, a succulent called Stapelia. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, I used to have this as a boy. And my Aunt Patty came for Sunday afternoon tea and I said, Aunt Patty, just come and smell this. It's absolutely fantastic. You horrid child, she said. <laughs> Rotten meat. <laughs> the people of my village must think I'm mad because whenever I'm walking the dog, particularly at this time of the year, we've got some great, there's one guy in particular, he, um, he very much goes for one rose. I've no idea what it is, but it's along the kind of Lady of Shalott line. So it looks a bit like that. And that's all he has. And each year he prunes it back really hard. And then it's an amazing show. Um, and I'm always going along, sniff, sniff as I walk the dog, pausing at all of these rose bushes around the village. And my other half sort of, come on, stop smelling the roses. <laughs> Actually, pruning is something we should we should probably cover because I think particularly for, for newer gardeners, rose pruning, the, the brutality that you can use on a rose can seem quite shocking. Uh, yes, it's, it's really sad that, that people are so scared of pruning roses. I think most, most gardeners come into two schools, either they chop them down to sort of like six inches or something like that, or they twiddle around the top and go, oh, I don't want to cut too much off, it might harm it. And the, <laughs> the great thing to remember about root, uh, pruning roses it's not permanent you know so if you make a mistake it'll soon rectify itself and that's how of course you learn by your mistakes you learn by observation you learn by mistakes so so just yeah just have a go you, it won't be the end of the world at all uh, a very very basic rule is just to down basically chop it down to half so all that stuff about outer pointing buds and prunes of angle and sort of like quarter of an inch above the bud all load of slash one can forget all about that. Just chop it down to about halfway. And once it's a few years old, cut out some of the old stems to encourage new young growth in the base. And you know, that's as complicated as it, as it needs to be really. Oh. I think a lot of rose growers and gardeners are gonna say, thank 
goodness for that. <laughs> you just debunked all those myths. I mean, you know, uh, it doesn't need to be as complicated as, as it's made to look, actually, but especially if you read old uh, books. Yep. Well, yeah. yeah, I mean, that, that thing about print and angle, that's probably come, came about because in the, in the olden days, um, people used to use pruning knives. And so to cut through a, a stem, you can't cut across, you have to slice it. So, you know, to, and yeah. then that's, and also all of these rules and regulations come from, from uh, wanting to grow the perfect rose for the show bench, you know, and if you want to grow the monster onion or monster leek or, um, or perfect, you know, huge dahlias and chrysanthemums and things, you do all sorts of, of weird and wonderful and to, to get that perfect specimen and, and all that stuff about roses. Um, and by the way, I think people who show plants like that are wonderful. I, I no, no, no complaints about them at all. I think they're, they're wonderful people. But all that stuff about how you want to grow the perfect rose for the show bench has come through today to how you should just grow an ordinary, grow, you know, ordinary shrub rose in the garden. And it's got no, no relevance at all. That goes back to our um, episode with Lady Ursula at Eastern, Eastern Walled Gardens, who uh, they very much are all about growing sweet peas for the garden, not for showing. So it's about getting the best out of them. It's not about cutting off tendrils and growing varieties to have the best, uh, longer, straighter stems and all of that. Yeah, I mean, I could never understand about cutting tendrils off. Why? What? Lord. <laughs> well, as Alan always says, life's too short to stuff a mushroom. I think life's too short to cut tendrils off my sweet peas. Uh, I, exactly my phrase, uh, exactly, is life's too short to look for outward pointing buds on roses. <laughs> <laughs> now, we've seen Rambling Rector, we've seen Lady of Shalott. I think you had another show and tell squirreled by your screen, Michael. Yeah, this is... Um, is is got to be one of my very favourite roses of all. Uh, it's called Adelaide Doblion, and excuse my French accent because I was I was born in France, so the first few years were spent in France. And um, it's a rambler. We I can see it from my window. Where I'm sitting. We've got a series of three arches, uh, and um, that, that is completely and utterly, utterly covered in flowers at the moment. Uh, and the most beautiful flowers. They're, they're sort of they're not small, they're, they're bigger than Rambling Rector, um, sort of medium size, semi-double. It has a bit of fragrance, but nothing very much. It doesn't set hips, uh, so it falls down fairly badly on, on those two counts. But, but the fact that it's just such a beautiful rose uh, that I excuse that. And then the, the, you can see how it hangs down. So this is the point of attachment. So it just hangs down. So the growth is very, very lax. And so it's the perfect thing for growing over sort of pergola or, or a big arch or, or for growing into a tree as well. And it's just the most beautiful thing out. And then the buds, I don't know if you can see the buds just start um, oh. slightly soft pink. So yeah, and it's, um, it's just about evergreen. So in winter, you don't end up with a whole lot of uh, bare stems and it's a very, very, um, very healthy too. Wonderful, wonderful rose. Have you got it at East Ruston? No, but it, I will have. <laughs> I do love those little, quite, they're not, I mean, I couldn't see it perfectly on the screen. I'll need to go and look it up uh, better. But you get these lovely roses. They're sort of a bit scruffy. You know, they look like they've got their bed hair. I love those. A Phyllis Bide always makes me think of that. Like, they're just a bit rough around the edges. Yeah. Yes. Informal, you mean. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, they look like they've just got out of bed. I love it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's the great thing about ramblers is they are sort of basically informal. Yeah. That's got a slight smell. I don't know if, um, um, not not guessing at your age at all, Alan, but I don't know if you remember something called B-Max, um, which my grandfather used to sprinkle on his porridge, which is basically bran, I think. And no, I, uh, I like All uh, right. And so some, some roses have this sort of branny type fragrance, and this has just a little bit. Mm. You mentioned hips. Um, it is wonderful if your rose can serve up some fantastic hips. What would be, I mean, apart from the rugosas we talked about at the beginning, would you have varieties that really deliver on the hip front? Um, well, carry on with the ramblers. Francis E. Lester uh, is just one of the best. It's, it's little single dog rose-like flowers. Flowers incredibly freely. Um, wonderful for growing into a tree. Uh, and then just a, a superb crop of hips uh, in the autumn. 
the other uh, great one, of course, there's a lot of the species, all, well, all the species, all the true species set hips, you know, things like Moisea geranium and Swagenzoei and Cetipoda and things like that, uh, all set, Virginiana, all set a, a wonderful crop of hips. Uh, and then there's sort of um, things you wouldn't expect to actually is, is uh, I think, did I see the generous gardener at East Ruston? You did, you did. Yeah, now if you don't deadhead that, that mm. sets an absolutely superb crop of really good sized uh, orange red hips that last right, right through the winter. Uh, so that's absolutely superb. And so it's interesting that the um, at David Austin's last year when they, everybody was furloughed bar one, no deadheading was done and a lot of hips were produced from varieties that you wouldn't necessarily expect. So it's always interesting not to deadhead everything in sight uh, and then just to leave a few on and just uh, just see what happens. You might be very pleasantly surprised. Mm -hmm. um, you uh, you mentioned that um, obviously at David Austin, there's always breeding work, there are always introductions and it's, it's easy to be in love with kind of old favorites, um, not old fashioned, obviously only old favorites. <laughs> um, do, uh, obviously you're keeping an eye across new introductions are there things that have come out recently that you are kind of desperate to try desperate to add um the, the one that uh that they, they they introduced i think two or three years ago is called eustacea vi it's a rather lovely flower uh, quite quite very very full petals uh, sort of a lovely blend of soft pink and, and apricot and uh, lovely fragrance as well and very healthy too so that's one that i've um, i definitely want to try and uh, incorporate into the garden. It's slightly tricky actually because because we're Rosie and I are both very passionate gardeners and have slightly different ideas about uh, <laughs> what a garden should look like. We've um, we've we've um, we've divided the garden into two. So um, so I I have my bit which she's not allowed to touch. She can advise, but she's not allowed to touch. And then she has her bit which uh, similarly I. I can't touch, uh, unless she's away, of course, and I can <laughs> pluck a few of these. But um, what was I going to say? Oh, yes, because so in, in my part of the garden, it, it's it's rather wilder. So I, I love the wild plants. So um, so something like Eustacea vi wouldn't really fit in because it's just too cultivated. So I, I've got to sort of somehow persuade her it'd be good to add it to her part of the garden. You need to do that age-old trick of making her think it was her idea. <laughs> Just Absolutely, leave, yeah. leave a catalogue open on that page and hope it catches her eye. <laughs> with um, with so many new plants, I mean, we, we've talked about this a little bit sometimes with the kind of Chelsea Flower Show plant of the year, that they can look great, but then in uh, in cultivation, they, they don't actually you know, perform in the garden. The With a, a you know, a company like David Austin, when they've got such a reputation, how much work goes into testing and trialling before a rose hits the market? Well, from, from, from crossing to actual introduction usually takes about 10 years. Uh, and obviously during that time, you have to propagate the numbers. So they start off with one plant, literally one plant, um, and then you've got to propagate it up. So you've got, they usually have sort of maybe 15, 20, 25,000 plants of a new variety available for, for sale. Uh, and that takes uh, quite a long time, but that time is also very important to just make sure that it's a really good, uh, reliable variety. So you might have a variety that looks fantastic one year and the next year for some reason it, it you know falls completely flat on its face. Because in the, in the trial beds actually they're not sprayed at all. So they're, they're, and they're planted very closely together in a huge, you know, huge great field. So it's a huge great big monoculture. And so really the, the pest and disease um, pressure on them is huge. Um, but even when you introduce them, you, you know it's a good variety, but you don't really know until it's actually been grown in the garden for another two, three, four years. Do you know whether it's a, a really super duper variety or just, you know, just a very good one? Uh, yeah. it's, it's actually tested in the garden, which is the is when you find out how good it is. Well, I suppose also, you know, with, with us normal gardeners who generally put things in the wrong place and <laughs> don't look after them consistently enough and <laughs> treat them <Yeah>. mean. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and then so it, that's why I think something like Instagram is very useful because you you see people post pictures on there. I mean, there's 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 a variety called uh, the Shepherdess, which was introduced I don't know maybe ten years ago now, something like that, 
Uh, and I've never really, I mean, it's not the most exciting rose, it's a pretty rose. Do you have it? At, you don't have it at East Rust, no. do you? At the no. I know. Uh, and it's, it's not nothing very exciting to look at. It's sort of a soft uh, pinky yellow color and the flower's not terribly exciting shape, but but it's, it's, it just has that sort of little magical character around it. David Austin used, used to use this word charm. And he, he always said that his roses had to have charm and it's something you can't define, but it's something you can sort of recognize when you, when you go up to the plant. And so that, that's, that's a magical character. And I think a lot of modern plants uh, score uh, nul point <laughs> when it comes yeah. to, to charm. Uh, you know, I, you know there's, there's things like wallflowers, you know, the good old fashioned wallflower was a nice straggly tall thing that had the most fantastic fragrance and now they breed ones that are short and dumpy and no fragrance. Chrysanthemums, I mean, the old fashioned chrysanthemums, they were wonderful things, you know, tall and beautiful flowers and now you go to the average American garden and there's this sort of blob of colour on the ground. <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> It just well, no I, it's interesting you talk about chrysanthemums, um, Michael, because somebody, some years ago, somebody bought me um, a chrysanthemum in a little pot that you have on your windowsill or something. I think they're affectionately known or disaffectionately known as plant, pot mums yes. or something. And I, I, I nearly threw it out. I, I was disgusted that somebody thought that I should like such a thing. And I have to say, I didn't throw it out. I planted it in the garden. Of course, what I didn't, hadn't realized at the time that it had been treated with a growth hormone to dwarf it. So oh. it was what little thing in a pot. The second year, of course, it outgrew this and it flowered yeah. at normal time with chrysanthemums flower in October. And it was it had these wonderful sort of thin ray-like pale lemon yellow petals. And I yeah. still have it in the garden today, but I mean, you know, that is the true character of the plant and not the dwarf little monster that was given to me. <laughs> <laughs> It's a bit like um, these little pot roses you buy from supermarkets and things like that. Is that that um, I always sort of well, I used to be very rude about them, and then and then when we moved into this house about so I don't know seven or eight years ago, um, uh, there was one in the pot here, and so I said, oh, "Throw it up, throw it up, no good," uh, and uh, I was overruled, and um, so I did nothing to it, and it's I think it's still I haven't actually seen it recently, but it's it's actually still growing with very very old care or no care care at all and it's, it's actually not an unattractive thing at all so it's, <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> it was determined to prove you wrong to prove it's worth <laughs> before we move on to some flomo obviously we've touched on the roses you've got at east ruston alan with your many yep. acres you've had many planting opportunities are there any favorite varieties we haven't mentioned that you wanted to highlight and wax lyrical about and Heap praise well, upon. One rose that I do like, we've got a couple of arches of, is, of it, is a climbing rose called Maygold. Um, oh, yeah. Again, it's a very informal flower. Um, but Michael t t touched on fragrance and how fragrance sometimes wafts its way towards you. And Maygold tends to do that when the weather is right, especially when you have a sort of um, a humid day, hot and humid, you know, and Maygold will waft towards you and it is really, really lovely. Um, it's often mentioned as being a one flowering wonder, but it's not. If, if you prune, if you deadhead it, it will produce, although fewer, but flowers in the autumn as well. Yeah. Um, which is very, very welcome. But I mean, it, and it doesn't take long to deadhead those arches, actually. Um, so that's one of my favourite, favourite roses, I suppose. And the other one is attached to my grandfather. And I mean, this was, this was for many years sentimental. And it is Gloire de Dijon, which is a, um, a it's a colour of cold tea, really, isn't it, with milk <laughs> in it. <laughs> and uh, he loved this rose. It, 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 he had a seat in the garden and it used to grow around the seat where he used where he used to sit. But although it was very, um, shall I say, timid in flowering, and I think the reason was because it was on an east facing wall. Um, we have it here on a west facing wall and it suddenly this year it has been marvellous, but lots of roses have been marvellous this year. Yeah. But Gloire de Dijon, which he used to um, say in his Norfolk accent, Glory Dijon. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's the phonetic spelling of it. Um, that's a, an old favourite too. But I think it. I think it is. It's one of those roses that requires. Um, if I dare I say cosseting, I think it probably does require a little bit of cosseting, and I think it likes to have its back quite warm. Yeah, yeah. It's one of the old tea roses, and so yeah, the, the, it does like. Um, 
it does does like warm conditions. So a nice warm south or west facing wall would be ideal. And then a good lot of moisture as well, uh, yeah. ground and good feeding as well. Talking yeah. of the yeah. colour of, uh, of milky tea, or I suppose more aptly parchment, you've got that um, rather novel, was it Coco Loco at East Ruston? Yeah. <laughs> well, who could not fall in love with a name like Coco Loco? <laughs> just so mad. <laughs> Uh, yes, it, it, it's it's the colour of sort of dirty brown paper, I suppose, in a way, isn't it? Parcel paper that's sort of crumpled and got a few yeah. stains on it, that kind of thing. But the, it, it's, it's the, the, the Americans are very good at uh, coming up with um, uh, original names, shall we say. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And actually, I mean, if you've got the space, there are, I suppose, a few peculiarities or few sort of novel introductions it's nice to play with them I mean somewhere in our kind of communal planted areas that someone's put a, a quite a weird bluish rose in I've no idea what it is um but Wait, I'm not sure I, so wraps probably something like Rhapsody in Blue yeah I uh, I wouldn't want it in my garden necessarily but it is nice to see it yeah. which incidentally is not blue at all it's purple and mauve yeah. um yeah. And talking of, you know, seeking a particular colour, I suppose before we move on to Flomo, people may well have a Flomo for a perfect red rose inspired by Disney movies and florists and romantic bouquets of their, you know, yesteryear. What would be the best red rose for a garden? It's a tricky one, that one, because actually um, breeding good, healthy red roses is very, very difficult. Uh, and um, and especially ones that have a fragrance, and so there's one or two that that um, that are are pretty good for health, um, but really don't have a fragrance at all. And really, you know, a red rose without a fragrance is a bit of a waste of space, really. Um, so I mean, I, I although Munstead Wood is is not truly red; it's more of a purple. Uh, it, it does have a most fantastic fragrance, and so I, I would nominate that one as the best best one. Um, it, it does, yes, yeah, so if you plant it with other plants around it, which enhances its beauty, then uh, then it also hides the fact that it might have the odd, very <laughs> odd black spot on it. <laughs> Actually, they've got a, a red rose trial at Wisley this year. Uh, and I guess, actually, if you go along now, um, then the, the, you, you'll be able to see some, some beautiful blooms on it. But of course, it's a, probably a bit later on in the season that the, the disease will start coming in. So maybe if you go along in sort of um, September time, then it'll be, they'll be having a second flush of flowers and uh, there'll be an odd spot of black spot and rust around as well. So it'll be very interesting to see. I'm going down next month to go and have a look. A reason, to not, as if we needed one, to go to Wisley. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Um, so before we wind things up, we always like to do a spot of Flomo. So this is the plant that you might have seen on Instagram, in a magazine, maybe even in a garden. Now we're all back out garden visiting. A plant that you just think, oh, I want to grow that. I'm having a bit of FOMO about it. Um, mine has already been covered because I do not know why I'm not growing Lady of Shalott. It is clearly the most me rose in the world i absolutely love all those sort of orangey colors so i think i'm probably just gonna have to go and buy that i've got a birthday coming up so maybe i'll get get lady uh, of shallot then so that's my flomo covered michael do you have anything that's uh top of your wish list well, I suppose mine's a, mine's a bit of a, a group of plants, really. Having lived in the tropics for um, for five years, um, where the tropical fruits grew, uh, and knowing the difference between a tropical fruit being picked straight off the plant and being guzzled, uh, as opposed to something you buy from uh, a supermarket, you know, it, <laughs> there's no comparison at all. So things like oranges and... and pineapples, mangoes, um, pawpaws. So unfortunately, I, I, I'd want to grow all of those. And so I'd, I'd need to have a, a fairly big orangery of some sort. Uh, and that is on the cards, actually. We are talking about it. So uh, all of those sort of tropical fruits that need sort of fairly warm conditions, that's what I want to oh. eventually grow. You really <laughs> was, are I, living the dream, Michael. I think we all want to come and live in your house and live your <laughs> live in your garden. <laughs> Yeah, there was a programme on television a couple of days ago, wasn't there, about somebody 
uh, you know, this is when pineapples were first introduced, uh, where they grow 200 pineapples a, a year you know, in, the, in, the, in the greenhouse. But you can imagine the amount of work that that uh, needed in those days. People wow. st st stocking the boilers all the time and fresh manure and all that sort of stuff. Wow. You don't need to grow <laughs> 200 at least. <laughs> <laughs> Alan, where is your FLOMO at this week? Well, my FLOMO is, um, it's, it's a wish, but I don't think it's a wish that will ever be um, fulfilled because we have a, a lovely old climbing rose called Pom Pom de Paris, um, which is an, a, over the office door. And it, it's, a, it's a climber that is small in all its parts. Its flowers are small, its foliage is quite small. It does get a, a little bit of mildew now and again, but I forgive that um, because it's sheer flower power. It starts flowering, it has a big main flush, flush of flower in April and May with us. It's very early and then it flowers intermittently. And if I don't prune it too hard throughout the year, and you occasionally will still have flowers on it at Christmas time. Now there was, in the Victorian period, there was a bush version of Pom Pom de Paris. And one of the things the Victorians used to do is grow fruit, flowers and things like that in pots. And they had a little holes cut in the dining table, rather like old lavatory seats, you know, pri outside privies. And you used to drop the pot into this hole and so that your guests could either pick the fruit off or just admire the flowers when they're having lunch or dinner. And I would love to find the bush version of Rosa Pom Pom de Paris, but I don't know whether it's in existence anywhere or not. So that's my flomo, but who knows? I've got, um, uh, I've got a, a book which every serious rosarian should have <laughs> called uh, The Combined Rose List. Uh, and it's uh, put together by a chap in, um, in Ohio. And it, it lists just about every single rose that's ever been introduced and, who's, and importantly, who sells it. So I'll, I'll look it up because I think that is that the rose called Roulettei that you're looking for? I don't know. I haven't heard of that. All right, I'll, I'll look it up. I'll do some research and see if uh, the, the, one of the best places, uh, if not the best place in Europe to, to find um, rare roses, because they've got a huge list. I think they sell about 2,000 different varieties, is a, a nursery in France called Loubert, L-O-U-B-E-R-T. Uh, and uh, if you, they, they've got a website, so you can maybe look it up on that and um, see what you can find. And it's interesting you mentioned Pom Pom de Paris because that was my secondary flomo. I've been really coveting. My mum has a little one um, in her garden and it flowers the exact same time as her Ceanothus. And I don't know which Ceanothus it is, but it's a really dark blue one. And they look absolutely amazing together. So I've been kind of, I have nowhere I could put it really, but there's, it's on the list. <laughs> there's one here for you if you want it. <laughs> Actually, oh. that's what you do, Alan, is to um, to put a growth regulator on your big one. There you are. You've got to, you're going to have a short one. Don't you? <laughs> yes, true. That's possible, maybe. <laughs> well, Alan, I may yeah. be paying you a visit to uh, to pick up a pompon de Paris. We'll uh, <laughs> we'll see. But Michael, it has been such um, a revelation, really. I, there are so many roses now that I kind of want to find a space for, and I have no room for them. But maybe in a future garden. <laughs> I have this list. <laughs> Thanks, Michael, and today. <laughs> well, you've certainly impoverished Alan, so well done. <laughs> I must say, I was absolutely delighted when I walked around East Ruston a couple of weeks ago to see so many roses there. It was wonderful. Really, really, really enjoyed it. Well, in the last few years, I think we have got, uh, shall we say, into roses uh, um, uh, much, much more than we ever were. Yeah. Um, I think the thing that we've realized is that they are such good plants as uh, to incorporate into borders with other plants, with other shrubs, with other herbaceous perennials, with annuals, in fact, with anything. Yeah. I mean, you know, as you said earlier, there's, there are some ugly annuals, but there's some very nice ones as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if you remember the great fuss that was went around um, Christopher Lloyd uh, digging up the rose garden, you know, the I do. rose garden at Great Digster. And huge fuss made about that, you know, oh gosh, you know, the end mm. of the Rose Garden, all that sort of stuff. And uh, I, I had I, I had a sneaking f feeling that there was some more behind the story than that. And uh, so I contacted Fergus and he was saying, oh yeah, I mean, the, the soil was good, not a good place to have a Rose Garden. But in fact, Christopher Lloyd, 
loved roses, you know, and he there's lots, lots planted around um, Great Dixter. So, um, yeah. I think the most famous, famous rose with him in, in the long border is the Florence May Morse, which is a red rose that we mentioned earlier. Um, and he grew that, and I grow it here as well. I'm not, I'm not sure that I grow it as well as he did, but he grew it, um, I think, on a pole right. in, in, in the long borders. I think there were three of them on a, on a pole to make a unit. Um, and that was that was very good as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think anybody who says they don't like roses, they they haven't looked at them properly. I think. But, you know, talking of looking at them properly, before we ran out of time, I mean, you do run garden tours, so people can come along and really see roses properly in your company. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, um, Todd Garden Tours. That's T O D. Todd starts for two old duffers. <laughs> so Todd <laughs> Garden Tours. Yeah, and then I do various lectures around the place as well, and uh, workshops and things like that. Yeah. So people can get more Michael Marry in their lives, and who wouldn't want that? Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming along and sharing your clearly vast rose knowledge. We would expect nothing less of a rosarian, but it has been absolutely wonderful. So thank you. And, you know, come back again to tell us about even more wonderful roses for our gardens. Yes, love to. It's been a great pleasure. Wonderful. Really enjoyed it. <laughs> Happy gardening, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, 4Ds here. Just to say thank you so much for listening to Talking Dirty. You are now officially our favourite person. If you really liked it, please do subscribe because we'll be back for more plant-loving mayhem next week. And as you're our new favourite person, we don't want you to miss out. If you've got a question for Alan and the experts, you can email it to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk. So happy gardening and we'll see you, oh favourite person, next time.